Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, December 20th. In today's news, Nancy Pelosi's delay in transmitting the articles of impeachment intensifies a bitter standoff with Senate Republicans. Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren clash at the Democratic debate over a wine cave fundraiser. And Congress is doing something to protect us from robocalls. But first, the big idea. Former White House officials say they feared Vladimir Putin influenced President Trump's views on Ukraine and the 2016 election. Almost from the moment he took office, Trump seized on a theory that troubled his most senior aides. Ukraine, he told them on many occasions, had tried to stop him from winning the White House. After meeting privately in July 2017 with Putin at the G20 summit in Hamburg, Trump grew more insistent that Ukraine worked to defeat him. The president's intense resistance to the assessment of U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia systematically interfered in the 2016 campaign and the blame he cast on a rival country instead led many of his advisors to think that Putin himself helped spur the idea of Ukraine's culpability. One former senior White House official said Trump even made it explicit at one point. According to the senior official, the president said he knew Ukraine was the real culprit because, quote, Putin told me. Two other former officials said that senior White House official described Trump's comments to them at the time. Putin told me, he said. Putin told me. This revelation is one of many in a long article that popped last night based on interviews with 15 former administration and government officials. The remarkable reporting from my colleagues Shane Harris, Josh Dossie, Carol Lenig, Ellen Nakashima, and Greg Miller underscores just how linked this whole Ukraine Donnybrook is with Russia's ongoing disinformation warfare against the United States. John Kelly, who served as Trump's chief of staff from mid-2017 until the end of last year, marveled to other aides that Trump expressed far less skepticism of Putin, whom Trump sometimes actually refers to as my friend, than other world leaders who are in charge of democracies. Kelly tried to get U.S. experts to speak to Trump before his scheduled calls with the Russian president so that they could push back on some of Trump's misconceptions. But the briefings were to no avail. Early in the administration, Then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko was eager to secure a White House sit-down with Trump, ideally before he met publicly with Putin, so that he could demonstrate U.S. commitment to defending Ukraine against Russia's ongoing occupation of Crimea and in the East. But Trump resisted the meeting. White House aides were confused. Ukraine was an ally in a war against a country that had just undermined the U.S. elections. Meeting with Poroshenko was a no-brainer, one former official said. This person said it was, quote, utterly mystifying to them why Trump wouldn't agree. The only explanation they could think of was that Trump didn't want to upset Putin. Poroshenko came to the White House in June 2017 for a meeting with Vice President Pence. Trump had a short drop-in with the Ukrainian leader, allaying some U.S. officials' concerns that he wouldn't even bother to say hello. But that meeting stood in stark contrast to Trump's warm reception a month earlier of Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Sergei Kislyak, who was then Russia's ambassador to the U.S. In July 2017, 
Trump had his first in-person encounter as president with Putin at the G20 meeting in Hamburg. Their highly anticipated formal conversation lasted more than two hours. But later that day, they met informally for an additional hour at a dinner for heads of state. At the time, U.S. and Russian officials did not disclose the conversation. During the meal, Trump left his chair and sat next to Putin. Trump went alone, and Putin was assisted by his interpreter. For some White House officials struggling to understand Trump's obsession with Ukraine, the Hamburg meetings were a turning point. Three former senior administration officials say that Trump repeatedly insisted after that meeting that he believed Putin's assurances that Russia had not interfered in the 2016 presidential campaign. White House aides were also not allowed to attend a later meeting that Trump had in Helsinki for two hours with the Russian president. They were accompanied only by their interpreters. Trump then took steps to conceal the details of his formal meeting with Putin in Hamburg. He even took the notes away from his interpreter and ordered her not to discuss what had transpired with any other administration official. This fall, U.S. intelligence officials informed lawmakers on Capitol Hill about what they have concluded has been an organized campaign by Russian government propagandists to spread the Ukraine conspiracy theory on social media. The reports by American intelligence analysts cite evidence that these propagandists were taking credit in Russia for helping to spread disinformation that equated Ukraine's actions to Russia's, and they were celebrating the traction that it was getting, particularly with conservative news organizations like Fox News. The intelligence reports were shared with members of Congress and their staffs, including lawmakers who have in recent weeks become some of the most vocal advocates for investigating Ukraine's alleged interference. Unless you think this is some kind of backward-looking big idea, there's fresh reporting this morning that the Trump administration is actively working behind the scenes to kill a new package of sanctions on Russia. And Bill Barr's hand-picked prosecutor, who's been tapped to scrutinize the origins of the FBI's investigation into the Trump campaign's dealings with Russia, is now examining former CIA director John Brennan's role in how the intelligence community concluded that the Kremlin interfered in the 2016 election. The New York Times reports today that John Durham, the U.S. attorney leading that investigation, has requested Brennan's emails, call logs, and other documents from the CIA. This gives fresh fodder to accusations that Trump is using the Justice Department to go after his perceived enemies. Meanwhile, the Justice Department is investigating the founder of SciHub, a major internet piracy operation, on suspicion that she may be working with Russian intelligence to steal U.S. military secrets from our defense contractors. Alexandra Elbaikin, a computer programmer born in Kazakhstan, is the creator of a website that provides free access to academic papers, usually available only through expensive subscriptions. Her supporters describe her as a sort of Robin Hood of science. But a former senior U.S. intelligence official tells The Post that he believes she is working hand-in-glove with Russia's military intelligence arm, the GRU, the same organization that stole emails from the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman and then provided them to WikiLeaks in 2016. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this long week comes to an end. Number one, 
Congress was paralyzed Thursday over Trump's impeachment as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi delayed acting to initiate the Senate trial that will determine whether Trump remains in office. It's a dramatic procedural move. A day after the House voted to impeach Trump on two articles, Pelosi announced that she would refrain from transmitting the articles to the Senate until Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sets rules that are acceptable to Senate Democrats. In particular, Democrats want McConnell to agree to call key witnesses who refuse to comply with subpoenas during the House investigation. The House voted last night to adjourn for the holidays until January 7th, throwing into doubt when the Senate might be able to begin its trial, potentially pushing it further into an election year and threatening to deny Trump the satisfaction of a swift acquittal. Pelosi's maneuver underscored her eagerness to maintain control over the process rather than turning over the reins to McConnell, who bragged earlier this week that he's working hand-in-glove with the White House and also said publicly that he makes no pretense of being an impartial juror. Trump, McConnell, and other Republicans attacked Pelosi and the Democrats yesterday for having a weak case against the president and effectively withholding the charges to avoid Senate scrutiny. Now, it's still possible the Senate trial could move ahead relatively quickly in the new year if the two sides resolve their disputes in the coming weeks. At the White House on Thursday, Trump was unbowed and predicted that he will be acquitted eventually. He emphasized his partisan advantage in the Senate. Number two, a pointed and personal clash over the corrupting influence of wealthy campaign donors dominated the Democratic presidential debate in Los Angeles as Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg tangled over each other's ability to govern with integrity. The confrontation, which ignited after weeks of simmering disagreements between the two, provided the biggest fireworks in a night filled with elevated voices, waving arms, and some of the most aggressive exchanges of the campaign. Seven candidates on stage, the smallest debate of the year, fought over health care policy, age and experience, and whether they have what it takes to defeat Trump. Warren's assault on Buttigieg for holding fundraisers with wealthy donors, including a recent event in Napa, California, which took place in a catered wine cave with a crystal chandelier, marked a dramatic shift in her past practice of avoiding debate stage conflict with her rivals. She declared billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president. Buttigieg accused Warren of hypocrisy, noting that she held fancy closed-door fundraisers just like that one in the wine cave, during her Senate campaign just last year. And then she transferred $10.4 million of that money into her presidential account. Buttigieg said he has no doubt that Warren was not corrupted by that $10 million. Then Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, who separately attacked Buttigieg for having a thin political resume and leading a small town, quickly piled on. She said she's never even been to a wine cave. Then Bernie Sanders who, like Warren, does not hold high-dollar events in the current campaign, targeted Joe Biden for a fundraising strategy similar to Buttigieg's. Sanders said Biden has received contributions from 44 billionaires, while Buttigieg has only taken checks from 39 billionaires. Number three. The Senate, yesterday afternoon, passed new limits on robocalls before wrapping up for the year. The House passed the same legislation a few weeks ago, and the bill will now go to Trump, who is expected to sign it. The measure won't cut down on robocalls immediately, but over time, it should lessen the unwanted interruptions and take aim at the fraudsters behind them. Under the proposal, dubbed the TRACED Act, the government will gain new powers to find and prosecute criminals who place batches of calls under fake numbers without obtaining permission. 
The bill remedies what law enforcement officials have said are major weaknesses that inhibit their ability to punish those who contact Americans in mass to defraud them. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, December 20th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I will be off for the next two weeks, but my colleagues will be filling in for me. Have a very happy holiday season, and I look forward to talking to you soon. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and post reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. <laughs>